Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Eva Mendele is a certified high-performance coach, international speaker, and author. Her book, Intimacy of Race, How to Move from Subconscious Racism to Active Allyship, is one of the more interesting books that I've read in a while. This podcast, we will dive into it. But let me tell you a little bit about Eva. She's coached both men and women in areas of personal development, leadership, and mastering habits for success in their personal and professional lives. She specializes in helping busy professionals have more money, time, and success without sacrificing health, well-being, and relationships in the process. She is one of the best experts on how do you create this life that is both in balance, work and life, and fulfilling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, I send you greetings, love, and an opportunity for you to listen into an intimate conversation with my friend, Eva Mendelek. She is one powerful thought leader and understands the power of words. And so today we're going to talk about not just having words and being intentional about our words, but we're going to talk about how do we turn those words into true action? How do we peel back the onion about how we want to live in a cultural inclusive world or workplace? And as you know, that's what I focus on. It's about closing the gap between who you want to be versus where you are right now. And what are some small steps that you can take that will get you there over time. Because remember, consistency is what we're looking for here, but you got to take action first. So Eva, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Denise. I am so excited to be in conversation and communication with you today and and your audience. So thank you for having me. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I I just think this is going to be such a rich conversation for people and folks are going to walk away with a little something. But you know, we relate better when we know things about people. So yes. I'm going to ask you the magic question. Of, mm-hmm. Tell us something about you that other people may not know about you. So something about me. Well, here's the thing about me is that I grew up in a town in New Jersey called Patterson, New Jersey. And it's kind of, you know, a lot of the 9-11 terrorists actually were, were based in Patterson, New Jersey. And I grew up with a dad from North Carolina and a mom from the North and grew up in the the 60s and in the height of the civil rights movement. And one thing that I was determined to to do as I was growing up was, as we all, as parents, Mm -hmm. create something better for my kids. And I just really watched my my family, my parents work hard so that I could go to private school and have better opportunities than they have. And, 
you know, something people don't know about me is the level of resilience mm-hmm. from coming from the quote unquote ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> Which you probably didn't know until somebody told you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of ethnicity in different types of ghettos. And, you know, there where where I grew up at that time, there was the Irish ghettos and the Italian ghettos. Those were the main ghettos, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now Patterson has evolved to its own special ghetto. But <laughs> my point in sharing that is, is that, you know, because of where I grew up and seeing how, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion and things like that, but seeing the way my dad as a cop, one of the few African-American cops in the 1960s in Patterson, New Jersey, Mm-hmm. And the level of racism that he swallowed, mm-hmm. how it just really had me open up more to what this looks like when we talk about diversity and inclusion. And and I think for me, people look at me and they're surprised <laughs> that, so. that I had a really basic upbringing, I guess. You know how people make assumptions yeah. all the time based on how you look, how you dress, how you talk how you walk and things like that. And I am just really a simple girl, (laughs) a simple girl who knows how to polish herself up when she needs to. Yeah. 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 And is unapologetic about where she came from and that you still have very simple values. I doubt if you're a simple girl, you're probably a very complicated woman um, who has the heart of a young girl. How's that? You know what? I don't think I'm complicated, but I do think I'm multifaceted. Let's okay. put it that way. Yeah. All right. But All right. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, why I say I'm not complicated is because I'm very open. Okay. And and share everything. So I try not to leave people in a place where they have to figure me out. I'm ready to answer all questions and tell you everything. I'm not shy about it. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about, because the way you talk about who you are and how you grew up, et cetera, and to be so open, many mm-hmm. people are, are like, they fear that they just mm-hmm. can't bring themselves to, I, I like to say, you know, we shouldn't make people read our minds. We should live in a way that it's okay for me to tell you who I am. I'm not necessarily looking for acceptance from you, but I am looking for understanding, yeah. but that takes some that takes some self-work, you yeah. know, some ideas in your own brains and some things that you've got to trash out. Because as you mentioned before, you grew up when your dad was the first or one or the only mm-hmm. um, African-American in the police force of all things. Yeah. And yet somehow you decided you made a decision that you were going to show up and be authentic, but also not let people just read things into you. Mm-hmm. How did you, you know, can you remember when you made that decision and the journey to really be confident about coming out like that? You know, it was a similar journey as my father's actually. And I I went to dental hygiene school and there were very few blacks in dental hygiene, black females. It was mostly a female profession back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm talking like late 70s, early 1980s. And there were only two African-American ladies accepted. I was one of them. And I was the only one who graduated to the end. And one of my professors looked at me and said, I will never be successful as a hygienist. Mm. And I took that <laughs> to as rocket fuel. Yeah, I used that as rocket fuel. And within six months, 
I was cleaning the acting legend, Sidney Poitier's teeth. Six months of graduation. Now, girl, I almost melted looking at, you know, he just looked at me with those big eyes and that big, beautiful white smile. And I think I'm going to die right now. Like I am 19, 20 years old, cleaning this man's teeth. Who's that? And so my point in sharing that is that every time somebody tells me I can't or no, I have become more of a solution-based person. Like, Mm -hmm. how can I, what do I need to do? How can Mm -hmm. I do that? And so part of my resilience, lack of a better word is, is my reaction to people telling me no, or I can't. And I have to say it was a journey, you know? You know, as a woman, I come with my own kind of imposter syndromes and less than that was ingrained from my early life experience, seeing my Mm -hmm. mom, you know, more of a submissive housewife kind of thing. And I always knew what I didn't want in my own life. And so that just came with really reading, learning, sharing, you know, when you said, you know, I'm open about who I am and my story most of the time. I come from the place that a story not shared doesn't serve. Mm-hmm. And I've always picked myself back up by reading other people's stories, listening to how other people have overcome their struggles and how they created success. And so who am I to hold back mine just because it looks messy and may not be perfect. It mm-hmm. may just be what someone else needs to keep going and not give mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting because when I hear you speak, I hear you speak about thinking about what it is you want. So focusing on what it is you want less than what it's not. And that's the interesting thing, because one of the things that you talk about is the five pillars of cultural inclusivity, and that is about clarity. And I always think that clarity starts with within. So Mm -hmm. the leader has to be clear first before he can get clarity with his team or her team. Mm -hmm. And then from that point of view, then the organization can get clarity on where they're going and what they want to do. What does it look like when we are successful? And too often, what we're trained to do is pull everything back and figure out, oh, this piece isn't working and that piece isn't working and that piece. And so when I work with executives, oftentimes they're quick to dive in on what they don't want. But it's interesting hearing you talk about the clarity of what you want and how that gave you the resilience. Can you When did you discover that that really was, you know, a really good power, good skill to embrace? Well, you know, like you shared, I was really clear what I didn't want Mm -hmm. and not always clear on what I did want. Like, Mm -hmm. I know what I don't want, but what do I want? And that's what most, I think a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially struggle with. And, you know, how you get clear is to take action. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to, take the first step. You know, I spent nearly 40 years as a dental hygienist and I knew I did not want to die as one, Uh be retired as one, working for other people and all of the the stress and the backache and and the risk to my health. Mm -hmm. I, I got out in 2018 and And I knew I wanted to do something else that gave me the freedom lifestyle. I wanted to not go to a nine to five job, but I had no idea what that would look like. I just knew the dream lifestyle I wanted. I wanted freedom to travel. I knew what I wanted to feel inside. Right. 
but I didn't know what path to take to get there. I mean, I was 50 years old at that time and we're talking 10, 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, I, do I really want to go back to school and learn something else? Do I really want to work for somebody else? What can I do? I've been a hygienist since I'm 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And so it was really just getting out there, diving into the world, if you would. And seeing what was out there and trying things and failing, trying mm-hmm. things and failing, but always failing towards my goal okay. forward, I call it. And as I got more clear on what I didn't want, right, the layers got peeled back on what I did want and what I did experience. And I didn't know, I didn't have all the answers at first, but mm-hmm. I was brave enough to let's let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. let's start doing something. I think I started with network marketing and I was just like, yeah, that's too much of a hustle game. And I, you know, that didn't work for me. Right. I love the product. It was like, when my mom sold Amway, uh-huh. sold it to ourselves <laughs> more than anybody else, right? More than anybody else. And that's how I ended up. It's like my mom, I repeated that pattern, but in that journey, you meet people. Yeah. You know, you make connections, you meet people that you aspire to, to reach their clarity, their level of influence, how they become productive or effective. And you actually surround yourself with people who have been on similar journeys Mm -hmm. until Mm -hmm. you find what works for you, what clicks for you. And then you dive all in with, you know, whatever training you need. Always, I'm a big fan of hiring mentors, you know, having mentors, hiring coaches mm-hmm. so that they can keep you from making all the mistakes. <laughs> Not that you, you know, you want to make mistakes. Actually, mistakes are the best tuition you will ever pay in your life, yeah, better yeah, than any, yeah, yeah, yeah. any college university. But I would say I developed clarity, got clearer the more action I took. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what happens is with the action, you know, it either moved you forward or it took you in a direction that you didn't want, which gives you more clarity, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting that you also talk about hiring coaches and mentors because most people want to have mentors or coaches, but they don't necessarily want to pay for them. Mm -hmm. And yet we all want, I think most people want people around them who are going to help push them forward, or at least a significant number of people want that. Out of that, when you're a coach too, so clearly people might look at it and say, oh, you know, the two coaches are on there. (laughs) Clearly they're going to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's kind of the elephant in the room in here. But I I have lately been seeing more people wanting to engage in a coach. Mm. What would you say in, in this area? How do you know you got the one that's right for you? Well, I always say that you're never going to know. Until you try, you know, one of the things is you don't know because you don't have a crystal ball and you can't see the future, but you've got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, because indecision is the highest form of self-abuse, okay. not being able to so- decide, wanting to wait, to wait, things are perfect. How do I know? I don't know. Like, no, you're not going to know, but I've always been a person to make a decision and then do everything in my power to make it the right decision, mm-hmm. which means I am an active participant in my life. And the mm-hmm. results that I have, the first coach that I had was in real estate. Mm-hmm. because I went into, uh, I have a real estate investment company and I had this coach and he was assigned to me from the company that I got my education on. 
And he was talking to me like I was an idiot. And mm. I finally said to him at one point, I said, look, let me tell you what I need to make this work and where I'm coming from. And I gave him clarity on the direction that I, what I needed from a coach and mm-hmm. where I wanted to go. And it was my mm-hmm. first kind of interaction with coaching. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know. I mean, I used to see signs for life coaching and be like, who needs a coach for their life? Don't you know yeah. how to live? You know, yeah, I was yeah, like yeah, the yeah. biggest cynic out there. Like, you know, you must be some kind of idiot. If you need right, 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 a, right. Life, a life coach. Like, right. Really? And so I said to this, this, this gentleman, and I let him very clear what I needed and where I wanted to go in my real estate business. And he was very appreciative, heard it. And the whole direction of the coaching changed to where I got my needs and expectation meant and what I wanted to get out of the coaching, not mm-hmm. from a script that he was reading mm-hmm. because the, the scripted stuff didn't work for me. I needed mm-hmm. to be met where I was at and somebody mm-hmm. else may be in a different place and that's where you meet them. And and then it was fine. And then I took off and I had my first deal within a few months and, and, it, and it was perfect, but I took responsibility right. to making that decision to hire that coach. I think it cost me like 10 grand at that time. Right. To make that be the right decision, I did. I was not a passive player in that. Right, and and that, it's it's interesting you say that because you know when you're in school, you really kind of are a passive player, right? And look how the much teacher, we pay for school. I know, I know, and so it, it's very interesting. And so people, I, I can't tell you when I was in HR, how many times people came and said, "What should be my? What's my career path? Which? Well, how should I get along with?" And I'm like, "Wait a minute, can, nobody can tell you what your career path is because only you know what you want to do." You have a set of skills, some of them you love, some of them you hate, some of them you need to develop, Mm -hmm. but only you can put that combination together to decide how you're going to create value for others and who are those others that you want to be able to do that. And so this idea of personal accountability is, I think, the first step in leadership. Mm -hmm. I want to shift a little bit because you wrote a book that was very interesting to me. It's called Intimacy of Race, How to Move from subconscious racism to active allyship. And before we got on the call, I, I told you one of the things I was interested in is the prevailing language is about implicit bias, mm-hmm. which I don't think people mean it, but it always comes across as an intentional thing. Mm-hmm. Subconscious by the word means that it's unintentional and that my behavior is just kind of aligned with my habits. And there's an unawareness that goes with that. So do you see a difference between the intentional acts and the kind of habits that we create that are more subconscious? And how does that show up in this idea of being an ally? Well, the intentional bias or racism, which all of us know, you know, the the hate crimes, the, you know, I, I do a lot of posting on like this day in history mm-hmm. from the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, because I have a Facebook group called the Intimacy of Race as well. And that's the racism we know. It's blatant. It's in your face. You know, they're proud of it. They're not really trying to hide it. And then there's the what I call subconscious or unconscious racism that you know, that is built off of the habits, patterns, beliefs, and behaviors from our early life experiences. And, you know, I always work with my clients. It's the first thing we do is we set a foundation for better performance in their lives, Mm -hmm. success without sacrifice. But we first look at those ingrained habits, those ingrained habits that are so deeply rooted in us that we don't even recognize them, know them anymore, or see where they show up 
to hold us back from our highest intention. And so, you know, we may have heard our parents say things or conversations around the dinner table or the the climate of the time. Like I'm a product of the 60s in my childhood. I was like mm-hmm. eight years old when Martin Luther King was, was murdered. And my dad had met him a week before and was his bodyguard because he'd come to Patterson, New Jersey okay. a week before his assassination. I didn't know what a big deal that was at that time, but I always took those photos to show and tell. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't even know if they still have show and tell in school. But my point is, we all have subconscious or unconscious biases, racism in our lives based on the culture we grew up in, the homes mm-hmm. we grew up in, the school mm-hmm. systems we went in. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of what we know. Like I learned how to set a table a certain way. Didn't know that there was like a high end way to set the table and what the way the knives should be faced, you know. and so. I could look at that. I was like, why do they have to make a big deal about which direction the forks are going? Right. You know, that's a little bit of a bias. You know, that's hoity toity. But, you know, I grew up different. So when I see something that's not the way I grew up, I think of it as different. Right. Or maybe even strange. Or why did they do that? Like the when I had an Afro in 1973 and was in an all white school. Mm-hmm. Like, why is your hair like that? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, kids are naturally curious because yes. it's different from them. Right. But somehow these habits are ingrained in us and mm-hmm. we may not even see where we're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about trying to think of an example here. Oh, for example, like I never learned how to swim. Okay. Like I said, I grew up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I actually never understood why so many black people didn't know how to swim until I started studying deeply the history of this country and how we were forbidden from being Being in pools pools and and going swimming. And, but you'll see a white person look totally shocked that you don't know Mm -hmm. how to swim, Mm -hmm. not knowing. And that's an implicit, I mean, that's a subconscious racism because of not knowing the history yeah. Also assuming that everybody had the privileges that you do. Yeah. And it's the assumption part. Yeah. And and here's the, the human side of that. We all make assumptions. Yeah. So even when we talk about, you know, racism is not always about, you know, black, white. Yes. We have classism. We have, you know, we have even within the African-American culture, there is a level of racism of not from from things that we were taught. Yes. About colorism and Mm -hmm. education and working with your hands versus not working with your hands, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things that go on. And so one of the things that I've started working on in the last couple of years is really helping to us to unearth some of our own isms, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I believe that, you know, every system only stays when everybody plays the same game. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's privilege from the system that gives privilege. And in in the workplace, you know, HR is kind of responsible for the system of how people get paid or how people don't get paid, who gets power and privilege and who doesn't get power and privilege. And it's, it's, it's no one's fault. The system is built. HR hasn't changed in over a hundred (laughs) years. Right. (laughs) And yet we find ourselves in a brand new place of thinking really deeply about humanity. Mm -hmm. And how do we not create camps 
this camp is better, this camp is not. If you're a CEO or a C-suite person, you get more privileges than you do if you're a frontline worker, those kinds of things. And now we're talking about what does equality and equity really mean in the workplace. In your work, what do you see and what would you say if you had a magic wand, what are a couple of things that you would like to see changed and how would it come about? Well, I think we need to learn how to listen. First of all, most of us have not practiced the skill of listening. And when I say listening, I actually mean generosity and listening, listening to actually hear, listening for understanding. Most of us listen to respond. Okay. Most of us listen to react. Most of us listen to defend. Yeah. Most of us listen to fix or to help. We have this agenda in our listening. And if we can just learn, like I, I have a little framework that, that it's LAPI, if we can listen mm-hmm. and then acknowledge the person for sharing, yep, then paraphrase mm-hmm. so that they know that they were heard and yeah. understood and then be in the inquiry, ask powerful questions that move towards a solution or a reconciliation. Like for example, you know, if, if, I remember sharing in my Facebook group an experience I had in Germany. I spent the summer in Germany and we went to this little town north of where my mother-in-law lives to visit my sister-in-law. And we stopped, my husband and I, my mother-in-law stopped in this really quaint little old German town that you, you could see on the movies or even portrayed in cartoons or whatever. Right, right. And I remember walking around being the only and yeah. I decided to explore a little bit on my own. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> and, you know, being looked at, yeah. like, where'd this fly come in the buttermilk? You know right. what I mean? <laughs> right, 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 right. And, you know, even with my sister-in-law who grows, grew up in that area, and I haven't seen her in a couple of years because of COVID, I notice at dinner, she stares at me. I've been married to my husband for, gosh, 11 years now. We've been together 20. Mm-hmm. So I'm not new. To right, right, right. Let's right. put it that way. Right. I didn't just show up and it's like, oh, you know, but I always felt stared at. So after the events of the past couple of years, I feel it more. Mm-hmm. And so I just shared this on my Facebook group. And what I got were people, oh, they're just staring because you're beautiful and they're staring because you're confident. Yep. Staring because yep. they and I'm like, you know what? Teaching moment here, guys. Sometimes you just need to hear the person without trying to fix them or make them feel better. That may not be what they want. And if you don't know what they want, you can ask. So, you know, for me, even just asking, you know, what would have made you feel better? Like, what could you have said? What could you have done? How could that experience, you know, how did, how did it make you feel? And, you know, just asking more questions, like, you know, what do you think needs to happen? Like in a town like that, is there anything you could have done or said, or maybe had your husband help out more and just, you know, really look for the open-ended questions that start a dialogue. And so I would just really like to see people listen to really understand the root of what I was feeling. Yeah. I've, I've always been stared at as the only in a lot of situations. Right now, you know, my always go-to was protecting white fragility. Mm-hmm. Now I've made a shift in how I show up. And mm-hmm. so being stared at affects me more than it mm-hmm. used to. Yeah. Yeah. Because now your awareness has come up. 
Yeah, my awareness has been very heightened as well, and the what's, ancestral stuff too. Yeah, and what's really what's interesting about what you presented this listening with generosity. I use the same thing, generous listening. It has two parts in my my world. One is is that we assume that the person's intent is good. Mm-hmm. Once you put that filter up, that it's you know this person's not trying to harm me. They're not trying to overshadow me. They're not trying to make me feel bad, but they're that, and now I need to hear what their point of view is, mm-hmm. then it opens you up to be able to hear the nuance of what the person is trying to say. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I found very interesting in what you said about the listening with generosity is, you know, oftentimes I get confronted by executives and people who I'm coaching that says, you know, that stuff takes too long. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, you know, we, we can't talk about feelings here. We, you know, it, it just takes too long. But the skills, the way you described it, of to say it again, was did you say lap? Yeah, L A P I. Listen, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. acknowledge, mm-hmm. paraphrase, mm-hmm. and inquire. Yeah, those skills are the exact same skills that you should be using when you're following up with someone to ensure that they got the work done, mm-hmm. ensuring follow through. When you're trying to dig deep on why customers are acting one way when you want them to act another way, Mm -hmm. when an employee comes in and they didn't get the work done because they said, I didn't understand what it looked like. If they practice it there, Mm -hmm. then it it makes such an easy transition to be able to practice when global events or other events come and people come in not at their best. Does that, does that make sense? And in your relationships too. I remember yeah. the day I didn't practice it with my husband and I couldn't figure out why he was acting all weird. And finally <laughs> I said, what did you think I said? Right. And when he said it, it was so 180 from what my intention was and what I thought I said. I right. thought I said something. I mean, and we sometimes have a few things lost in translation because English is not his first language. And probably not mine either, <laughs> being in America. <laughs> but I was being passionate and loving, and he heard something totally different, and I couldn't for the life of me. And then because of his behavior, I was making up all these stories. Yeah. Love me anymore. <laughs> you know, and you know, all of this when I should have followed my own framework. Right. And sometimes you just get too comfortable and you don't. And it's just like, okay. And, you know, we did a course correct. Like, let's, let's talk about, you know, this is what I said. What did you hear? Yeah. You hear when I said it. Yeah. There's something totally different. Yeah. And, and it was really, really, you know, we, we got to laugh at it. We got to do a do over and, and move on. But when you build up this skill, mm-hmm. it works in every area of your life. Yeah. Every and so, area of your life. So flipping it over to active allyship. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously the the listening, but what else does that define? I mean, what other behaviors does an active ally? Well, it's taking it out of your head Mm -hmm. and, you know, the whole defense. I'm not racist. My parents taught me to love everything. God doesn't see color. I don't see color. That's the denial piece. So activity is actually having the conversation, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, and it's also doing... What, what a group I'm working in calls the own work. What could you do in your own homes to really open up the conversations using these frameworks? What can you do if you see something, kind of see something, say something, which I think came up 
about after 9-11. If you see mm-hmm. a package, if you see suspicious behavior, right. you see this, you know, what would work for you, you know, for, for companies and for businesses, you know, really being active in not giving people just a seat at the table, mm. voice at the table, you know, you know, seeing minority owned businesses and giving them, if you've got a level of influence, giving them a shout out on social media, really, mm-hmm. you know, bringing attention to that business. Right, so right. There are certain active things you can do in your own businesses and to support other businesses. I had a, a summit a couple of months ago called the Diverse Talent Showcase, where I just, you know, generously showcased minority owned businesses and mm-hmm. talent to put it out there because if you want to, you know, really be an ally, you can hire, mm-hmm. you can buy from, you can support more minority owned business. Right, right. You don't have to pick it. You don't have to put all kinds of signs in your yard and think that that's it. I'm an ally because I have a Black Lives Matter sign in my yard. But what can you actively do? Right. That to support people because money, we need money, we need funds. You know, we can make a better difference the more money we have. And so, how can you support businesses? How can you bring more diversity on your teams? I mean, all kinds of studies show how much more revenue that you'll bring into your business, Mm -hmm. how much more successful you'll be when you bring more diverse voices into your communities. One of the things I hear from some of my clients who might be white is that they don't want to offend people who are of color. And what I hear from my friends who might be a person of color or a woman is, you know what, I'm tired of educating now. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got this fear, this kind of tiredness and fear base on both sides of them. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> how does, you know, so how does, you know, somebody who's white who really wants to do the right thing, but is fearful that they're going to harm someone or they've heard this, I don't want to educate you. And I get that, you know, you can read more books, you can watch more TVs that show life documentaries, those kinds of things. But as I write in my book, one of the things that we don't allow for is insensitive questions. We assume that a person who asks a dumb question or a question that feels harmful is has intention of it. And I'll give you a good example of one of the things, one, one of the first moments where I realized that people have to be able to ask questions was when I was uh, thinking I was going to be a teacher. I too went through the, within the chemistry department, the head of chairman of the chemistry department said, oh, you know, women and black folks can't be chemists. And my mother, Miss Louise said, you know, you better get out of college kind of thing. But at any rate, I was in this classroom and this little boy, you know, blonde, blue eyed, I went to school in South Dakota and he would, would just never come close to me. Right. And so finally, one day he just, he was, I guess he was tired. I was tired. I'm not quite sure what it was all about, but he came up to me and he said, don't you ever take a bath? I was like, what, what the heck? And I said, yeah, I take a bath. Yeah, I, I do take it. I said, why would you ask that? He says, cause you look like Dookie. And you know, that piercing thing in the heart hit me, but something called me to say, pause a minute. And I said, would you like to wash my hands? He said, yes, I can teach you how to take a bath. I said, okay, fine. We had a sink in the kitchen. You know, this kid's five years old, blonde, blue eyed, probably had never in his life ever seen because we're in South Dakota. (laughs) There ain't a lot of black folks up there. (laughs) Took me over to the the sink, started rubbing my hands. Suddenly all the other kids are coming over because they're curious what's going on. And, you know, a few minutes and my skin turning really red uh, (laughs) because he was rubbing hard. (laughs) 
trying to trying to wash the black off you. Trying to wash the black <laughs> off of me, girl. <laughs> the the uh, you know the main teacher there was smart enough to grab a globe and we started talking about melanin and the skin and that some people are brown and what that looked like, but it it reminded me that we all assume that everybody has actually seen and worked with and been with someone who's a different race or a different, you know, ethnicity and whatnot. And there are hundreds of questions that they have to, that they want to ask, but can't ask. Mm-hmm. And I always think this idea of active allyship is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. They have to want, but we have to be willing to receive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very tricky when I was doing, I did a live forum called the Allyship Awareness, and I had six powerful Black women Mm -hmm. leading this discussion, but it was a listen and learn event. Okay. All of the participants, it was for white people Mm -hmm. or people who presented as white or was not Black. Right. And they had to listen and learn. And that's what the, the book is actually based off of the live forum. And I can't tell you how many people I reached out to that said no. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we have been exhausted for so long. Mm -hmm. The George Floyd incident was the straw that just, you know, it was the last thing that was Mm -hmm. put on us. And that was like, that was it. But for me, I was struggling as to how I could make a difference, where I could use my voice more because I hadn't been. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been. I hadn't felt the urgency. Yep. I hadn't felt the need. I haven't felt the pain of watching that man die. It was just, for me, it was a heart opening. It just cracked open in all kinds of my own racial biases against my own communities, my own tolerance of microaggressions within yep. the white community. Everything just melted away. And I really just sat and meditated and said, how can I help? Where can I do? And because, you know, I have a blonde hair, blue eyed husband mm-hmm. from Germany. So he didn't grow up with the racial culture in this country. Right. So it's really surprising to him. But, you know, the Germans have their own demons. They had to right, 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 right. be honest. Every yeah. country, every group. Yeah. They have their <laughs> there's own the in group. Yeah, there's the in group. So, there's the out know, group. We often talk about, you know, what he noticed in his country, how they de- dealt with their dark past compared mm-hmm. to, you know, how America really just wants to hide from it. Yeah. And, you know, the Germans have actually have memorials and, and all kinds of things like this is where this happened. And this is what, you know, they just mm-hmm. like, let's learn about there. it so it yeah. doesn't happen again. But my point in, in, in sharing that piece with you is what came to me was I can create a safe space for white people to ask and be embarrassed and to get it wrong and to trip over their words and share resources. Absolutely. I'm not teaching because I'm not a teacher. I'm not qualified. This is not what I went to school for. I can tell you about your teeth all day, every day. (laughs) But after 40 years of experience in that, but as I find resources, as I'm seeking resources, I share. And if you're open to learning and listening, I do Facebook lives in that group every Friday about my own experiences. And it's just really taken the taboo off of talking about it and talking about it. And, you know, there are people in there who say things and, you know, I feel like rolling my eyes, but I take a breath. Right. I pause and I walk away and I come back with how to help that person grow through what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, what they're saying, their lack of understanding and how they can come to a better understanding. And that's for me. Yeah. That's a choice I made. It may not be for you or anybody else, but you know, we can 
you know, my premise was I can complain about people saying stupid things and doing stupid things, or I can be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And that's what I chose. I just rephrase it as it's not stupid because we we have to say being able to question is not stupid. We can have insensitive questions mm-hmm. that trigger people, but it's, I would rather you get it out. Let's develop the relationship where I can allow you to have these questions with me mm-hmm. so that both of us can learn because I don't read minds and I don't anticipate that you do either. Yeah. 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 So I, I Creating cannot a believe- safe space. To have yes. this conversation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot believe we've reached the time. And I know people are going to want to track and follow you and even go to your Facebook live events on Friday. Tell us where we can find you and what's the easiest way to connect with you. Well, I'm on fa- the Facebook group that I'd love to invite everybody to is called The Intimacy of Race, just mm-hmm. like the book. Okay. The Intimacy of Race, because we do get intimate and it mm-hmm. is uncomfortable, but it's safe. Like if you're going to be uncomfortable, that's where to be uncomfortable. And people can go to my website at evametalek.com. It's just my first and last name.com. You got it. And we'll put links in the show notes so that people will be able to connect with you on that way. So folks, you know what I always say, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this, even if you're sitting on our shoulders and we're thinking about you. With that, see ya. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall, for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.